Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Sarah Lenner from the University of Utah talking about Noctoria. So uh, welcome to the next uh, Urology Collaborative Online Virtual Didactic uh, Lecture. My name is Sarah Lenher. I'm a assistant professor of urology at the University of Utah, and I have with me one of my uh, rising interns, Soren Kehani, is going to be my moderator, fielding any questions that come in through your question box. Uh, and thank you, everyone, for attending and um, joining us for this talk, either real time or in the future. Um, so today I'm going to be talking about nocturia. Um, this is a topic that uh, is very often seen by the urologist uh, in, the, in, the pra in practice, and um, I think that I'll be able to give you some high-yield points to uh, get through some of these challenging visits. Um, I have no disclosures uh, pertinent to this talk. Uh, however, I will per point out that this was one of my PGY2 residents uh, a couple of weeks ago, somewhere in Utah, enjoying a nice bike ride. Um, so my learning objectives today are to untangle the diagnosis and complexity of nocturia, optimize your ability to navigate encounters with these patients, and really collaboratively manage a tailored treatment pathway for uh, nocturia patients with other disciplines that also uh, are useful in treating nocturia. So first, really, what is the definition of nocturia? Nocturia is defined by the International Cotton Society and endorsed by the AUA as the number of times urine has passed during the main sleep period. Studies have shown that at least 30% of adults void about one time per night, uh, but more than one time per night, nocturia is really not considered normal and starts to dramatically impact health and quality of life, as we'll go over in a few slides. I'd like to point out that having nocturia is not evolutionarily advantageous. So what is this creature on the slide? This is a saber-toothed tiger. Now, I'm not entirely sure if saber-toothed tigers would have ever eaten a prehistoric human, but the point is that if you were a caveman, it's not safe to have to get up and leave your cave at night to go void. You need to stay in your safe cave and perhaps, uh, and if you don't, you might go out and be eaten by a predator. So your body has really been trained to decrease urine production at night by several mechanisms that all promote a low volume concentrated urine. And then when you wake up, these adjustments are reversed, often hormonally, and then you can diurese the fluids off. This pie chart lists the general categories of conditions that cause nocturia. Now, you could ask, is nocturia really a symptom or a disease? I would argue that given the complex nature of nocturia, given all of these different types of um, organ systems that are impacted, it's really, nocturia is really a symptom of an underlying disease process, and it's often multifactorial. So in, in uh, good talk um, character, uh, this is the final slide. If you only remember one thing, this is the slide. 
These are the causes of nocturia broken down by different type of organ system or condition. And then within each of these, you can see there's multiple different causes um, that, can, that can cause these different types of dysregulation. Um, so when you're in a visit with a patient, you can really start to use a, a formulation like this to identify what the low hanging fruit are that you could try to treat um, but you can really see there's a very significant complexity um, of nocturia, and oftentimes it's multiple different um, organ systems or conditions that are uh, causing the nocturia. But note that only one of them down here, this lower urinary tract symptom piece of the pie, is really urology specific. Oftentimes though, providers turn to urologists to really reassure them that, quote, the plumbing is working okay. And so we get called in quite often early on in evaluation, and many of these factors have not been addressed by primary care physicians, um, cardiologists, nephrologists, et cetera. So urologists are really a, a little bit of the reassuring uh, type providers that can tell other providers, look, I don't think it's a plumbing issue. Um, we've evaluated this but we, uh, we really should address uh, some other factors going on here. So as we just saw, nocturia is incredibly complex and multifactorial. So it's a good thing that there's an increasing number of publications over the last 30 years to study it, right? 267 in 2019, but don't be too optimistic. In comparison to prostate cancer, there's really relatively little research activity on nocturia and they and these papers over here, this 267, they tend to really actually be from the same authors too, again and again. So this is an area ripe for research, but it also is reflected in the number of treatment options that we have available. Here's the prevalence data for nocturia most recently. So this uh, here you can see that there is a linear increase with age. Here's age. Um, these these groups generally started to assess around 25 or 30 years old and up to 80, 85 years old. And here's the prevalence of nocturia. And for those that report greater than one time per night nocturia, you can see an increase, a linear uh, association there with age. And then here's the group for the two times per night nocturia. Put another way, uh, if, if you're a younger patient, 20 to 40 years old, um, one in five patients reports two times per night nocturia, but by the time you're 70 years old, three out of five reports uh, two times per night nocturia. There's a really significant burden of disease with nocturia, and that's one of the reasons that urologists really need to recognize it and, and be proactive about nocturia and the disease burden. For example, there's a 27% increased risk, um, relative risk of death if you have two times uh, per night nocturia. And this is probably not a causal relationship, but really a marker of chronic disease. And sometimes this is one of the only um, symptoms that patients will come to discuss. Falls similarly have an associated risk with um, nocturia. Um, fractures also uh, in the elderly for two times per night nocturia. And then there's a significant loss of productivity. This data is a little bit old from 2008, but even then, there was an estimated $61 billion per year loss of productivity for two times per night nocturia in the United States. 
I found this study striking because they asked patients to uh, rate how much these different issues disturb uh, their sleep. So this is the list of all these different types of issues, including pain, uh, cough, hype, heartburn, um, social problems, even an uncomfortable bed. Um, but nocturia was the number one cause of waking up almost every single night, followed by physical pain, which is approximately 10%. Um, so the other, the other factor to really uh, pay attention to here is that nocturia is really the one possible urologic complaint that people are actually willing to talk about and go to the doctor about. Um, it's less embarrassing to talk about waking up from sleep than say a weak urinary stream related to BPH or some other urologic problem. It's, uh, it kind of relays the, the burden of the description onto sleep disruption rather than um, some sort of urologic complaint. So it's really our job as urologists to ferret out whether or not this is a urology issue or some other type of medical issue or both. And then finally, it's really important to recognize that nocturia has a significant impact on quality of life. So this is um, a 15 domain quality of life questionnaire that was administered to people in Finland. And you can see on the top here, it's men, on the bottom, there's women. Um, and then with all of these different domains that are described on the y-axis, on the x-axis here, there's, um, there's an increasing um, um, burden of uh, impact on quality of life with increasing number of times per night that they void. Um, except, interestingly, of course, eating. So eating was not impacted by uh, quality of life, um, but all these other domains are. So here's our standard issue patient that's going to come in reporting nocturia. Um, I have a 55-year-old patient, and I'm not actually terribly concerned whether they're male or female. The approach for diagnosis is going to be very similar, and the treatments are also going to be very similar. Um, and this patient is complaining about four times per, per night nocturia. So this is where the true detective work comes in. This can be a very long and complex visit, especially if they're medically complex and poor historians. I really try to get what information I can at this point and then have them complete avoiding diary to supplement the information that I'm able to get from the clinical visit. Um, so first, when did, this, uh, when did the four times per night nocturia occur, uh, start happening? Um, how many times a night are they actually getting up? And is it um, every night? Is it just one time per week? Is it one time per month? Um, one of the distinguishing uh, factors about nocturia is are you really waking to void um, because you, you sense something in your bladder or are you voiding because you're already awake? And so this uh, gets at whether or not there's a sleep disturbance issue uh, related to some other medical problem. Um, the other thing to distinguish is, is the patient actually waking from sleep uh, because they've, and they've actually started their sleep cycle as opposed to what's called nighttime frequency. Nighttime frequency is when you think you're ready for bed, you go and you lay down and you can't sleep. So you get up and you go and void and then you go and you lay down and you get up and you void and you void. And some, many people will describe four times, um, needing to get up and go four times before they actually can fall asleep. 
And that's actually not, does not meet criteria for Nocturia either. Um, that's a, a different process where it's either uh, sleep dysregulation um, or you're actually diuresing your fluids off appropriately right before you go to bed uh, and then you need to go to sleep. But sometimes people will come in complaining about that type of um, pattern. Um, then we need to look at the character of uh, the nocturia. Is there a, a strong urgency? Is the volume um, small or is it pretty large? And you're, you're saying, hey, I'm, I'm glad that I got up to void. That was a really large volume that I needed to void off. Um, what time of the night are people getting up to void? Is it uh, immediately after they go to bed, an hour later? Or are they making it until 4 or 5 a.m.? Um, and then they have to get up. They can't make it until their actual alarm goes off. Is there any associated hematuria or dysuria? Um, and then the, one of the things that really helps guide treatment is understanding is this type of nocturia that they're um, complaining about uh, similar to a daytime urgency or frequency. So the important thing to distinguish is that some patients may have a similar type of urgency or frequency during the day, but they're less bothered by it because they're already up. It's not disrupting their sleep. So we, so you need to determine, hey, are you getting up to go to the bathroom every hour during the day also? And they're like, yeah, but I'm already up. I'm walking by the bathroom. I'm doing chores. And so it doesn't impact their quality of life as much. Next up on our history of present illness is our medications. So assessing whether or not the patient takes diuretics and what time are they taking them? Do they take sleeping pills? Are they dependent on them? Do they sleep great on the nights that they actually take their sleeping pills? Uh, I have patients that come in, they say, I really bother some nocturia, but you know what? I sleep great when I take my sleeping pill. And so they, they, and they're not wetting the bed after that. They're not having nocturnal enuresis. So clearly there's something about the sleeping pill helping with their sleep regulation that enables them to not have bothersome nocturia. Narcotic use uh, has multiple implications. SSRIs for depression actually uh, uh, changes sleep hormones and can make you diurese more urine overnight. Uh, so looking at SSRI use, uh, and lithium or history of lithium use can also impact um, the renal concentrating ability, so assessing those types of um, uh, uses. So then there's the past medical history, and this is where that key pie chart really comes into, into uh, use. And you really need to kind of assess many different aspects of this pie chart. Um, uh, for diagnoses and risk factors. So um, we've already mentioned that the urologist domain here is this lower urinary tract symptoms, um, such as overactive bladder, bladder outlet obstruction, or neurogenic bladder diagnoses. Uh, nephrogenic is also a very obvious cause of nocturia. So renal failure, um, all of these different types of things impact renal concentrating ability as would be um, appropriate. So renal failure, aging, abnormal circadian rhythm of the kidney, which means that, again, that uh, vasopressin that's supposed to be excreted is not working, uh, and therefore it's not um, going to sleep, you could say. Uh, and then nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. Cardiovascular, very, very common. So patients with heart failure, blood pressure, dysregulation, 
um, most, mostly um, hypertension, leg edema, low physical activity, and metabolic syndrome. Uh, some patients just uh, drink a lot of fluid, and so they might have a global polyuria. Uh, and so what sorts of water are people drinking? Uh, what's the sodium level in their diet? Um, obesity and high protein intake. Uh, hormones, sex hormones also regulate um, a lot of uh, diuresis through sleep regulation, uh, in addition to diabetes insipidus and diabetes mellitus. And then sleep. Sleep is really one of the big factors related to nocturia. So um, the, the number one cause and um, modifiable factor for nocturia is actually obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, in addition, there's restless leg syndrome where patients are woken for other reasons, uh, sleep disruption, low dopamine diseases, uh, and depression and anxiety uh, really is also very strongly associated with nocturia. For our past medical history, it's important to, sorry, for our past surgical history, it's important to assess um, prior pelvic surgeries, such as renal transplantation, uh, prostate surgeries, bladder cancer surgeries, pelvic radiation, intravesical chemotherapy, anything that's going to dysregulate um, bladder sensitivity. Social history, this is where I really spend a very long amount of time with these patients, way more than any population that I, that I see in clinical practice. The social history, you really need to get at sleep habits. So um, when, are the, when is the patient going to sleep? Um, and, and then when are they waking up? What sort of, um, are they taking naps over the course of the day? And then when they sleep, where are they sleeping? Are they sleeping on a recliner, on the couch? Is the TV on? Did they just watch a lot of TV prior to going to bed? Um, all these things uh, represent poor sleep hygiene. And I often send patients to their primary care doctors to specifically address poor sleep hygiene app, um, uh, behaviors. Um, if they are sleeping at strange hours of the day, are they actually drawing the blinds so they are not uh, getting abnormal signals from light to signal to them to wake up? Um, so these are kind of the details that you have to ferret out of um, a visit with this type of patient. Sleep disturbances are also very important. Does their partner snore or somebody else in the household? Pets. I have some patients who come in, they say, I get up four times per night, and then I just happen to let the dog out at that time. Well, the pets are triggering them to wake up, and if the pet slept in a different room or didn't need them to wake up and go and take them outside, they wouldn't wake up as much overnight. Um, noise pollution is also important, so um, I often recommend a white noise uh, make uh, sound machine or something to drown out uh, noise pollution. Um, those types of things can be from, say, a TV, or is it the one time per night, uh, one time per week that they have nocturia when it's trash day and the trash um, uh, truck comes at 2 a.m. and that's bothersome to them. Um, these are all kind of details that you uh, can identify. Alcohol consumption uh, is also associated with waking up for diuresis, caffeine, uh, assessing when and how much they're consuming, high salt diet, uh, exercise or a sedentary lifestyle. And then are they able to work? Really, what are they doing over the course of the day? Are they actually getting an, a sufficient amount of exercise and activity in their lives uh, so they can therefore be need a rest, need to sleep, 
and have a good sleep uh, for the night. For physical exam, I um, sometimes will assess orthostatics. Basically, I'm looking for autonomic dysfunction. Many patients will come in with complaints about autonomic dysfunction, which again was going to disrupt the way that the um, kidneys are sensing pressures and um, going ahead and um, diuresing. Um, is there any peripheral edema? And I specifically look at the legs and ankles um, and assess, or have you been told to wear uh, compression hose? And oftentimes they'll say they have, but they're just a pain to put on. But if they wear the compression hose, they probably won't have as much nocturia. Uh, prostate and vaginal exams are important to assess for benign prostatic hypertrophy or evidence of prostate cancer with asymmetry or masses. A vaginal exam can identify prolapse and um, postmenopausal vaginal atrophy. Uh, fecal impaction is evidence of chronic constipation, which can decrease your functional bladder capacity and lead to overactive bladder both day and nighttime. Bladder distension, again, an, a sign of incomplete bladder emptying. And then mobility. This can be as easy as just watching the patient get around the room, um, but it helps you identify how big of a deal is it that this patient has um, four times per night nocturia? Because if they're elderly and they can't even get up and walk independently, they're very, very high risk for falls and therefore mortality if we don't address and take this nocturia very seriously. For labs, um, I specifically like to uh, evaluate electrolytes, looking for um, sodium levels, uh, creatinine, looking for any renal dysfunction, glucose to assess for any uh, undiagnosed diabetes, and then urinalysis, uh, looking at specific gravity, proteinuria, microhematuria, uh, infection, um, and uh, glucosuria for, again, the undiagnosed diabetes mellitus. Um, so this is easy to um, be accomplished, and oftentimes just having an astute eye and looking at what labs have already been tested by other providers can help piece some of the, the puzzle pieces together here. Specifically for urologists, there's some studies that other providers can't offer. Um, we do Euroflows to look for an obstructed flow and avoided volume, and then I always ask the patient when I look at that Euroflow, I say, were you really full? And, or did you feel like you really needed to go when you went and peed on that, that funny toilet in the other room? And um, it, it's a good uh, litmus test to tell whether or not uh, their functional bladder capacity is 50 cc's and, and they say they really, really, really needed to go, or their functional bladder capacity is 500, and that tells me, okay, there's enough, there's enough volume capacity here. Um, is it a sensory issue um, that makes them get up to void overnight? Or are they actually voiding 500 uh, cc's at a time when they get up overnight? Um, so looking at that voided volume can be very informative. Postwood residual tells us whether or not uh, they've, uh, they're incomplete they have incomplete emptying for whatever reason. And again, that can lead to urinary frequency because the cup is always half full. And so we need to work on alleviating that postwood residual. And then the elusive voiding diary that the urologist um, can obtain. And again, other specialists are not going to um, be checking this. But this can really help us uh, look in the right direction for uh, what is causing nocturia. So voiding diaries uh, 
are, include recording the timing and volumes of voids. And standard uh, practice and recommendation is to collect three days of 24 hours each. There's additional information that you can collect on a voiding diary, and that includes the fluid intake, the fluid type, uh, pad use for those recording urinary incontinence, activities during um, the void that's recorded, and then any symptoms, your urgency or pain or anything else that can be re reported. So there's a variety of voiding diaries that you'll see. Um, here's an example of, of one that I um, was given uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, and you can see here there's already some modifiable behaviors to help uh, any urinary, um, lower urinary tract symptoms that uh, this patient might have given their high use of, they wake up, start off with some coffee, have a little bit of water, and then jump straight on to some beer uh, before they then go to bed. Um, so this is a, a good example of some modifiable behaviors that you can identify. I also get a lot of this example. Um, first of all, it's a lot of uh, little scribbles. It is legible, so I give them that. Uh, but the ins over here on this side, those are all recorded in, in ounces. And then over here, the outs, this is in milliliters. Uh, it becomes a lot of math. Uh, and so this is one of the challenges of voiding diaries is that um, it can be very time consuming to interpret these uh, and get any sense out of them. Um, but fortunately, there are standard voiding diaries that are available from the AUA, um, the International Continent Society and SUFU to use with your patients and feel free to always download these and integrate them into your medical practice. It's really nice to have these on hand right off the bat. Um, so when you collect this bladder diary, there's some certain, there's parameters that can be derived from um, this bladder diary. Uh, so there's daytime and nighttime voiding frequency, and does it change the difference between the daytime frequency of every 30 minutes and then nighttime, is it every 30 minutes still, or is it uh, upwards of three hours? Um, there's a total volume uh, voided uh, that can be calculated. The volume of the individual voids, like I mentioned, is it 50 cc's or is it 500? So what is that functional bladder capacity? How big can the bladder actually get um, with, um, or are we restricted with a really small bladder capacity? And then one of the primary calculations related to nocturia is to calculate the nocturnal polyuria index or the NPI. Um, and this is the fraction of urine produced during the night. So you take the, the urine volume that's measured overnight and you divide it by the 24-hour voided volume and that gives you the NPI. And we'll go over some cut points for the NPI in a little bit. So here's a standard uh, voiding diary. Now I could give an entire talk just on voiding diaries, but the important thing to understand in the context of nocturia is that the diary needs to be recorded for 24 hours and again three days is a standard um, uh, diary collection. They do not need to be sequential um, uh, three days in a row, but it's important for them to collect from 7 a.m. until 7 a.m. the next day if that's when they wake up. So they just need to pick a starting point. Um, and then the other thing that uh, is important to recognize is that the first morning void is, is included in the daytime calculation, not the nighttime calculation for the NPI. 
So because if you didn't have nocturia, that would have been a daytime void. You wouldn't have calculated that as nocturia. So for example, over here, this patient woke up um, at uh, 9 a.m. this day, and then um, they go throughout the day and they went to bed over here at midnight. And so their nighttime voided volumes are 350 there and then 300 the next day. But we're not going to include this 400 here in the nighttime calculation because that would be included in the next day's um, uh, daytime void. And so the polyuria definitions, um, when you look at your bladder diary, uh, is nocturnal polyuria is uh, diagnosed if you are less than 65 years old and your NPI is greater than 20%, so you void more than 20% of your 24-hour urine output overnight. Um, and then if you're over 65, there's a little bit more leeway, you get 33% because it is recognized that there is a significant change in your urine concentrating ability as you do get older as a natural part of aging. Um, and then 24-hour uh, global polyuria is defined as about 2.8 to 3 liters a day urine output, which can be calculated as greater than 40 cc's per kilogram over the course of the day. So um, you end up uh, getting out your good old-fashioned calculator. I keep one on both of my desks at home and at work, and I end up doing a lot of math uh, to calculate these things out and really look at the distinction between um, where uh, the daytime voids are, the nighttime voids, and what, what drives it. Uh, sometimes you'll have patients come in, they'll show you these bladder diaries, and you realize that um, the days that they're at home and they drink a lot of fluid, they have a lot of nocturia that night, but then the days that if they're a shift worker or they um, are uh, not drinking as much the day before, they don't have any nocturia that following night. Uh, so it can really be related to daytime uh, oral intake and factors like that. So you have to ask them, what did you do the day before this and um, other types of social situations. So you have your bladder diary. Now you need to kind of give it some sort of diagnosis. Um, the, the one that is going to be diagnosed the most is uh, potentially nocturnal polyuria. So I have here across the, uh, the top is nocturnal polyuria, low 24-hour or low nocturnal um, bladder capacity, 24-hour polyuria, and uh, normal bladder diary. So for nocturnal polyuria, consider the following diagnoses. So are they actually getting up and voiding overnight? I mean, sorry, are they getting up and drinking a lot over the night? Um, some people don't drink any fluids over the day and then they feel like they, they, that's okay to then drink them overnight. Um, edematous states, uh, such as we reviewed on, on, on that big pie chart, obstructive sleep apnea, again, very big, big factor for nocturnal polyuria. And then there's this one category called nocturnal polyuria syndrome, where the body just has a dysregulation of vasopressin uh, which is telling the kidney to um, concentrate the urine. And that's one of the key areas where we use supplemental DDAVP or uh, synthetic vasopressin to help regulate um, improved nocturia symptoms. For the low 24-hour uh, um, or, or low nocturnal bladder capacity, you need to consider your urology causes. Ureteral or bladder stones, incomplete emptying, so the cup is always half full, 
idiopathic overactive bladder, which you would also then see small voided volumes during the daytime, neurogenic bladder dysfunction, and then um, there's a, a, a syndrome called nocturnal detrusor of activity, where a patient might not have any detrusor of activity seen on urodynamics during the day, but at night there actually are uh, abnormal uh, detrusor contractions that then wakes the patient from sleep. Uh, so that can occur, very challenging to diagnose, um, but um, can be treated with anticholinergics if, if appropriate. 24-hour polyuria, uh, again, look at these different types of uh, dysregulations for um, fluids in the body, uh, diabetes mellitus, primary polydipsia, diabetes insipidus, hypercalcemia, and a lot of different medications. Um, and then you could just have a pretty normal bladder diary when you look at it. Uh, and so is this really a primary sleep disorder? Ask the patient, why did you get up and wake up at this time and this time? A lot of underlying psychiatric disorders also have sleep disorders with them. And then chronic pain, did they wake up because they were actually really uncomfortable and then they decided to go void? So like I mentioned um, on the previous slide, nocturnal polyuria is present in a lot of patients. So this highlights uh, that um, really the 76 to 80 percent, uh, 88%, 76 to 88% of these um, of this series had a nocturnal polyuria when reviewing the, these bladder diaries. So in reality, it's the kidneys rather than the bladder that really have a key role in nocturia. But remember that the kidneys have so many different causes that might be causing them to diurese overnight. And the reason is not always that nocturnal polyuria syndrome. The kidneys are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing, such as diuresing off large volumes of fluid um, and pressure. So let's get some focus on uh, some treatment options that we have as urologists and then how we can uh, aid our non-urology colleagues uh, with further therapies. Because remember, this is kind of our wheelhouse down here and we don't really necessarily need to be in, um, in the pot where we're working on all of these other diagnoses, but oftentimes we're called on to rule out these lower urinary tract symptoms and therefore reassure our colleagues that it's okay to start treating these other factors. Overall, the treatment options for nocturia though are pretty limited and there's really no magic bullet. Um, here are some therapies that are stratified by level of evidence, going from level of evidence 1A all the way to the lowest over here of four. Um, CPAP is really likely the number one effective therapy if the patient's diagnosed, diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea. Um, and then desmopressin is most appropriately for nocturnal polyuria syndrome. Um, but I really try to not um, prescribe DDAVP or desmopressin uh, too um, liberally because I feel like a lot of times it would just mask the other causes of nocturnal polyuria. Um, but the other thing to pay attention with this slide is that uh, there may be, that there are many treatments that may have lower level of evidence, but uh, there's also very low risk to implementing such um, treatment recommendations such as a low salt diet, lose weight, increase your physical activity, Put some TED hose on if you have lower extremity edema. Raise your legs for approximately one to two hours before going to bed and then go and um, void prior to going to bed. 
When I try to instruct patients on uh, reducing edema, I explain to them that their, their ankles need to be up to the level of their heart uh, because that really helps shift the fluids that have pooled in their lower extremities back to their heart. Their heart senses the increased uh, volume pressure and therefore they're able to uh, void that off before they go to bed. Additionally, non-dipping uh, nocturnal blood pressure, um, blood pressure can be improved by changing up antihypertensive anti uh, timing and types, uh, and then just some common sense behavioral treatments. These are really low risk, and also melatonin is very common uh, to help with sleep. So these are really low risk, and so if you're looking at the risk benefit of implementing some of these types of treatments, a lot of these low risk uh, options are fair game and could be beneficial for many, many patients. So let's talk a little bit about desmopressin, which is one of the uh, agents that urologists are often um, uh, left to, to prescribe um, because a lot of primary care physicians are afraid of it. Um, so desmopressin is an antidiuretic. It's a synthetic hormone designed to mimic the effect of vasopressin, which is normally produced in the posterior pituitary. Like I said, I try not to only I try to only prescribe this in cases of nocturnal polyuria. Otherwise, I'm just kind of putting a band-aid on the situation. Um, and there are there is a risk of incre um, increased side effects, and it might delay uh, therapy for other medical problems that the patient has. So there's three options that um, urologists typically use. Uh, DDAVP is a long-standing medication uh, used primarily in patients uh, with bedwetting, so pediatric population. Uh, it's an oral uh, tablet. Technically, for nocturia, this is an off-label use. However, many people do use it, and the dosage is 0.05 to 0.6 milligrams nightly. Um, Nocturna is a sublingual um, formulation. Uh, and this has two different dosages, uh, one for women and one for men. Uh, but these, if you go to GoodRx, this is about 450 a month, and this one is about 45 per month. Uh, so there's there's a big difference um, in cost. And similarly, Noctiva is uh, more the most recent uh, one, and that's 450 per month approximately also. There's a low dose and a, a normal dosage of the Noctiva nasal spray. Um, the study showed uh, some small increases, uh, small decreases in nocturia uh, episodes without causing a significant amount of hyponatremia. Um, but really these treatments are very cost prohibitive right now. Uh, and so there's not, not very good options um, to try to take this. But I also really believe that, not, that the isolated number of cases that are actually nocturia, nocturnal polyuria syndrome uh, are really limited. And so again, there's not too much uh, applicability for these medications a lot of the time. And you really wanna make sure that you have ruled out all these other causes where the body is trying to push off fluids because of some underlying medical problem. Desmopressin can, um, when you're deciding to describe DDAVP, you can break it up into categories uh, with risk of therapy. So um, minimal risk category, you could say, are those that are less than 65, have a baseline sodium greater than 135, a normal GFR, no heart failure, no diabetes. So that's a pretty low risk uh, category. And that's, that's the patient that 
has probably pretty young in their 20s, trying to go to college, something like that, and they just feel like they're having to get up all the time. They might have some associated nocturnal enuresis also. Um, the moderate risk category would be greater than 65, have a, um, a borderline baseline sodium, a borderline GFR of 50 to 60. They might have some degree of heart failure, controlled diabetes or hypertension, um, and those are the patients I definitely want to make sure I'm not just putting a Band-Aid on the situation with BDAVP, but rather I'm assessing any other um, modifiable risk factors. And then BDAVP is really contraindicated in the frail elderly, low baseline sodium, uh, GFR that's uh, poor, uh, heart failure and uncontrolled diabetes or hypertension, and psychogenic polydipsia. So for monitoring of therapy, it's really important that you check the clinical response to treatment and you need to check the serum sodium. So many people, um, there's no guidelines in this uh, space, but many people recommend checking a baseline sodium, then check it after three to seven days of therapy. And then if their, sodium, uh, if their serum sodium on, is greater than 135 after three to uh, seven days, then you're probably safe to continue it at that dose or dose escalate if you need more uh, improvement. If they're 130, sodium is 130 to 135, want to keep a closer eye on them and really hesitate whether or not you dose escalate them. And if it's less than 130, you would want to stop it because they're, they're so not able to maintain an appropriate sodium. And then there's some uh, suggestion that you really should try to check these patients again at one month and then annually. Specifically screening for symptoms of hyponatremia, um, you should be aware that the symptoms are nausea, uh, vomiting, headache, confusion, loss of energy, drowsiness and fatigue, restlessness and irritability, muscle weakness, spasms, cramps, seizures, or worse, uh, coma and death. Um, so you really have to remember that DDAVP require, uh, therapy really requires you to stay on a steady diet um, of a steady salt intake diet and a steady fluid um, intake. So you can run into trouble if a patient then is on a, a dosage of DVAVP at home and then say they move to a nursing home. And when they go to the nursing home, the nursing home uh, protocol is to put them on a low salt diet and increase their fluid intake and, and do all these different things that, that actually have a very big risk for setting them up for hyponatremia and these different risk factors. Um, so I always try to explain to family members especially that if they do change their circumstance of, um, uh, if an elderly person changes their circumstance where they're living, uh, it's really important to make sure that uh, their sodium is monitored closely. So what about the other causes of nocturia that are bladder-centered? Um, there's really some low level of evidence to support treating with combination therapies, but none are particularly uh, effective. So if you imagine if somebody has nocturnal polyuria and overactive bladder, you could, um, you, you could go ahead and give them DDAVP and then an anticholinergic or a beta-3 agonist um, to cover kind of that overactive bladder component. Um, for if they have BPH, uh, or benign prostatic hypertrophy, you could also treat them with an alpha blocker um, or a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor if appropriate, uh, in addition to DZAVP. And then finally, you could imagine that a patient who has all three, it would be okay, there's no contraindication 
uh, to putting them on all three different types of therapies. But uh, the evidence to improve nocturia in these types of cases is very, very limited. And interestingly enough, even if a TERP is done for lower urinary tract symptoms uh, with bladder outlet obstruction and nocturia, the studies show that nocturia is oftentimes the one symptom that still persists despite a effective uh, TERP uh, or bladder outlet relieving procedure. Um, so nocturia is very persistent and really goes to uh, indicate all these multifactorial components that go um, into uh, the symptom of nocturia. So as we've discussed, there is a significant opportunity for collaborative care. Um, nocturia is a very morbid condition with a significant impact both in the um, prevalence and the effects on quality of life. Um, these management, the management strategies that, that um, you undertake for nocturia are really dependent on the underlying mechanism, which really needs to be evaluated with a thorough clinical exam and avoiding diary analysis. Um, and a lot of the components of that clinical exam and avoiding diary really are only able to be conducted by a urologist. But then, uh, then you can turn this type of patient back to um, your collaborators, uh, collaborating providers in primary care, cardiology, geriatrics, neurology, endocrinology, nephrology, et cetera, all those different organ systems that are on that big pie chart. Because really, if I don't determine that there's a problem with a low bladder capacity, either global or, or only nocturnal, I tell the, health, the other healthcare providers taking care of this patient that the plumbing is actually working well, and I really encourage them to explore other likely causes. Um, I also do, I mean, I want to partner with providers on these types of patients, but they're not surgical and they're not um, patients that, they're very challenging patients and they're hard for us as urologists to follow long-term. Um, so I try to offer functional options that can really address quality of life and safety. Um, and this can be like uh, suggesting the use of a bedside urinal or commode uh, so patients don't fall in the middle of the night when they're getting up to void because oftentimes these types of medical problems are not reversible and their nocturia will persist. Um, also suggesting options of condom catheters we're recommending to escalate uh, to a higher level of care, like transitioning to a nursing home, if there's caregiver fatigue or a history of falls. Oftentimes these patients are not able to get up and go to the bathroom on their own, uh, or um, so spouses are having to get up, or other uh, children that uh, typically would not be um, wanting to take care of their parents' um, urinary problems. And so, uh, this is an important place to recognize caregiver fatigue and other safety factors uh, to um, help guide uh, other providers in moving this patient to a higher level of care if needed. The other thing that I do is I also direct patients and healthcare providers to um, the Urology Care Foundation uh, resources to help educate patients and other providers. They have excellent handouts. They're all available online. Uh, you can have them uh, flash up on the screens in your clinics, uh, which is what we do here at the University of Utah, um, and we give out a lot of these handouts. So it's really an opportunity for education and indicating that it's not always about the functional bladder capacity or some urologic problem, 
but it's a very complex um, medical situation that is being unmasked with Nocturia. So with that, uh, and thank you very much for joining me on this discussion about the complexities of Nocturia. And I'm very happy to have had uh, the opportunity to contribute to this collaborative. And I would love to take any questions if anybody has any. So thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Dr. Lenher. Great talk and I think very informative information because lecture um, is so common and bothersome in elderly. I don't see any questions in the Q&A box. If you have any questions, uh, please feel free to use the Q&A box uh, for the questions. Uh, meanwhile, also, please do not forget to fill out the lecture evaluations on the website and the recorded version of this talk and the slides will be available uh, on the website, the Urology COVID website. And we'll just wait out and wait until if anybody has any questions and Michelle can escort us off whenever she seems so appropriate. I see one question. They cannot, okay. It seems that they cannot use the Q&A box, but okay. um, there's one question on how do you determine which patients just need reassurance and how do you approach that discussion with the patient? So reassurance that the nocturia is um, normal. Uh, so there's, it really requires figuring out how it's impacting their quality of life. Um, and so are they really anxious about it? Do they actually need to see a, a therapist about working on the anxiety? There's a lot of anxiety related to sleep. Um, and so maybe they're only getting up one or two times per night, uh, but which might not be uh, significantly bothersome, but it's causing them a lot of anxiety. So it, it can be a very challenging. Oftentimes nocturia visits are several, uh, or nocturia treatment uh, evaluations are several visits long. Um, and then also if they're able to complete avoiding diary, a bladder diary, it's very useful for, to show them and, and say, you know, look, this is what your bladder does during the day, and then this is how it's behaving at night. Um, the other factor that I often do is really go back to that um, uh, in order to get patients to actually be proactive about implementing changes in social or lifestyle um, behavioral modifications. I really go back to that story about the saber-toothed tiger. And I say, look, your body is designed not to have to void overnight. Uh, you should be making a really concentrated, low volume urine. And for some reason, this factor is, is dysregulated in your body. Uh, and so I try to encourage them to understand that this is a marker of a medical condition and that we can um, work in a very uh, kind of multidisciplinary way to try to approach it. I hope that kind of addresses it. It's challenging to, it's, you can't really make patients do what they don't want to do also. Uh, so the more data you can potentially show them and say this is how things are going, um, uh, it can be very helpful in motivating them or family members or caregivers. Great, I think if the saber-toothed tigers were still around, we would have better research and more treatments for Naturia. Uh, there is another question. So what is your preferred specific <clears throat> quality of life assessment tool? So uh, actually, if I can show it here. 
had it. I didn't know if I would have enough time. Um, I haven't used this in clinical practice, but I kind of use it in my brain. And so this is how I was, um, uh, I, I was um, kind of pleased to identify this questionnaire. I give out so many questionnaires in clinic. I didn't want to overwhelm my clinic. But this is the Tango short form, the targeted assessment of nocturia to guide outcomes. And um, you can see they've broken it down by different colors here. Um, the top part is cardio and screening for cardio and metabolic uh, disorders. Then there's a sleep section, a urinary tract section, and then a well-being. Uh, and so this is um, how you could uh, potentially assess quality of life uh, and different patient reported outcome sections. So these are your PROs. Uh, and this is your quality of life sections, um, and also some risk factors in here. Um, and so this is one way to do it. Um, and the other, uh, there, there aren't any other Nocturia-specific quality of life um, assessment tools that I am aware of. This is the one that I believe is out there. So this is available for use if you wanted. And it's relatively simple and can guide a lot of your clinic visit with a patient. Okay, thank you. Another good question is um, the role of and the existing medications that patients are taking. So, for example, if there are calcium channel blockers, diuretics, SSRIs, so how would you approach these patients and uh, how would you change, do you attempt to change their medications or just like refer them to another provider uh, to uh, address this existing so medication issue? Definitely, definitely. Um, the cardiologist, I let the cardiologist tinker with the uh, timing, uh, calcium channel blockers, thiazides, um, ARBs, and ACEs. There's certain, um, uh, certain classes that have been identified that are useful to take right before sleep. Um, in general, the thiazide diuretics, they say to take at least six hours prior to going to sleep. Um, and so I, I definitely, I, I say, this is a modifiable factor. Why don't you work with your cardiologist? Because they may have some other competing interests that they're trying to work on. Um, and so I, I'd say, let's work with your cardiologist and see how we can change the timing or the class of that medication. Similarly, um, the SSRIs, uh, there are so many different medications out there for depression. I have them work with their um, prescribing provider to see if changing that to a different class helps with their uh, nocturia that might be resulting. I see one here. I'm, I'm actually able to see them. Uh, do you routinely seek a neuro neurology consult for sleep disturbances? I usually send them to their, I have their primary care physician prescribe them for a sleep study. And sleep studies are um, useful because they not only look for obstructive sleep apnea, but it also looks at other sleep disturbance activities that can occur, such as restless leg syndromes and other factors. Uh, so I, I definitely work with the primary care provider. I don't necessarily want the results of a sleep study landing on my desk and having to interpret. So I, but I, I highlight that, hey, you probably do have an undiagnosed um, type of disorder and why don't you go on over there to see them? And if they don't find anything on the sleep study um, that's uh, directly related to something they can identify, but we think there's a sleep disturbance problem going on, 
then I definitely refer them to neurology. Sorry, I broke up for a minute. Uh, um, did you answer the question are, uh, on existing medications already? Uh, yeah. So there, okay. And then uh, there's another question about how do you approach uh, patients who actually just wake up several times in the night so it's not a true nocturnal polyuria or nocturia, uh, but it's another issue that they wake up in the night. Do you approach these patients the same way or um, you, you only investigate if they're bothersome? Uh, only if they're bothered by it, but also if they're having associated falls. Uh, so is there a safety issue or a quality of life issue? Um, and, and so it, I have many patients with different degrees of lower urinary tract symptoms that don't bother them, but bothers family members because they smell of urine or something like that. Um, and so it's very hard to ch have the patient change their um, behaviors if they're not bothered by it. Um, so if there's no safety or quality of life issue, then you just have to reassure the family member that, you know, this is, this is okay. And if they want to be up all night, that's okay. In the same um, area, so how do you approach frail older patients? So uh, do you recommend anything on behavior, behavioral changes or pharmacotherapy or uh, which other specialists would you involve in the care of these patients? Really, geriatrics are the ringleaders for um, elderly patients, the frail elderly, and recognizing that uh, there's so many different factors that go into nocturia, um, and oftentimes you're not going to get it perfect. So helping an elderly patient find out what is really modifiable, what, what they're excited about trying to fix, maybe it's where they sleep, then they actually do want to sleep in a more comfortable bed. Um, but uh, the, the approach for the frail elderly can be very challenging as all their different uh, medical problems can be. And there's polypharmacy, fecal impaction, um, poor mobility, things like that. Okay, great. For, uh, so for the sake of time, we're close to 11 a.m. Mountain time. Yeah. So thank you so much for, for the talk. Um, thank you everyone for tuning in. And once again, please uh, fill out the uh, lecture evaluations available, uh, available on the website. Uh, thanks. Thank you again, everyone. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.